Hello, welcome to the Mystical Motherhood Podcast. I'm really, really jazzed about this amazing guest today, Dr. Thomas Verney. And I know I always say that, but this one, he's incredible. He's just a good soul who has a profound amount of research, books, information, publishing under his belt. He's one of the first people in history to talk about the unborn baby and his book, you can actually find it and you probably heard of it, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. He was teaching that, you know, the child within the womb is capable of learning, able to hear you, respond to noise, sensitive to the parent's feelings and active, basically an active feeling human being that responds and is conscious. And he wrote this before anyone even knew that epigenetics existed back in the 1980s, really. He was one of the first, like Dr. Bruce Lipton. And I got to talk to him about all of that today and ask questions, real questions around, you know, pregnancy, what happens when you're depressed in pregnancy, what happens with food and emotions during pregnancy and then postpartum. We talked about a little bit about his other books, Pre-Parenting, Nurturing Your Child from Conception Forward, some more information about that. He wrote another book most recently called The Embodied Mind, looking at just consciousness in general and consciousness within the cells, um, memories alive within the cells within your body. He is a weekly, I believe, maybe monthly writer for Psychology Today, and He's also the creator of an incredible organization called APA, which is a prenatal and perinatal. It brings together prenatal and perinatal specialists and pioneers from around the world. And they have a conference, I think, coming up very, very soon in Denver, but you can get it online to learn more about all this consciousness within motherhood, within parenting, which is what this podcast tries to put a lot of information out. So he's, he was just, a great guy to talk to, super down to earth, very easy to understand. And he works with patients still. And he also is still writing, which is incredible. So I look forward to you all learning from him. If you have any questions, as usual, please write me at mysticalmotherhood.com or mysticalmotherhood at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at mysticalmotherhood. My private account is Pritam Adma. All of my books Mystical Motherhood, Fertile, Alchemy of Becoming are also found on Amazon, written under the alias Pritam Atma, and on my website at mysticalmotherhood.com. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star rating and a little comment. Share these podcasts with your friends. If any of them help you, that's how people learn. And I do this so Women can teach other women and how to become a better human and how to become a better mother and a better parent. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I did. You have done so much in your life. I don't even know where to begin. I have, I even reached out to a lot of my friends who are currently pregnant to ask you questions because yes. of such a broad career from, you know, I, I guess one of my first questions is for you is, you start your career out, career out looking at consciousness in the womb. I mean, part of your career, right? And then you go into looking at just consciousness within the body. And you're a kind of on the, you were always on the forefront of 
pioneering research that no one had been talking about right first so you know everything and oh and i wouldn't I have say an that hour with you <laughs> i have an hour with you so i guess i i'm going to ask as if you know for every mother out there that has young you know that's conception to you know the early childhood years we're speaking to them today so i guess what would you out of first off let's have you explain what epigenetics is to us from your okay. own words, and then we'll go into what women can really do to utilize your work. Okay. So epigenetics is a fairly new um, division or arm or, or part of genetics because for a long time, people thought that genes are your destiny. And uh, whatever genes you inherited from your parents, mother, father, uh, you were stuck with. And so you just... I mean, it was the blueprint and you followed it. And then people started, some scientists began to find that in fact, uh, genes are unalterable. You cannot alter them, but you can either switch them on or switch them off. In other words, you can make them silent or active. And it is the environment, all the things around us, whether it's the air we breathe or the food we eat. Uh, as we are talking, uh, our genes are changing in terms of their activities. So uh, there are these um, there are these switches, which which scientifically are called methyl and acetyl groups, uh, which then determine which genes will be active at any one time. So you could be you could be born with, with a gene perhaps for schizophrenia, let's say. But if the environment does not support those genes, you will never get schizophrenia. Same as cancer, same as everything else. So suddenly, well, not so suddenly <laughs> over the last 20 years, uh, but that's kind of sudden in terms of thousands of years of progress, People have discovered that the environment is incredibly important. And why is that significant to you and all the mothers who are pregnant and actually all the people in the world is because we can determine, we can have an influence on our environment. So, for example, you know, instead of, um, I don't know, uh, spending your day arguing with someone, uh, you can uh, you can avoid this argument and create a very uh, quiet, supportive environment for yourself. And that will have a much more beneficial effect on the baby, for example, that you're carrying, or even on your own body. So it gives us a chance. It gives us a way of actually uh, taking charge of, of our bodies and our lives. So that's what epigenics is all about. It's the influence of the environment on the genes. And for women listening, how would you describe what it's like for within consciousness within the womb? So if a woman were just sitting within her, if let's say she's quite separated from her body, she doesn't have a connection with her body yet and she's really deep in her mind and not in her heart. How does she touch into what consciousness in the womb is and how can she affect that, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, the first thing that 
any person, whether it's it's a woman who is pregnant, but you know, really any person has to has to realize is just first of all what I said in terms of in terms of influencing your body consciously. By this I mean like you and I talking, we are conscious. We know what we are saying, more or less. Um, in terms of having a baby in your womb, carrying a baby, that baby is constantly connected to the woman. It's like one unit, really. Uh, so everything that the woman eats, drinks, thinks, experiences, the music that she listens or does not listen to, all of this, these things are influencing the baby on a physiological, biological level, like in the body. But the first thing that the woman really has to realize, and this is sort of the big departure that really my book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, sort of introduced, uh, was the fact that the unborn child, certainly from the last trimester, from six months after conception, is really a feeling sensing, cognitive, remembering little human being. So this is not like a little goldfish swimming around in a bowl of water. This is a tiny little human being with a capacity to react and to sense and to remember. So when a woman realizes that she's actually carrying a living being in her body, uh, that will automatically change her attitude towards that child, because it is a tiny, tiny, tiny child. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that um, I have done in, 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 in my life is to extend that, not only from the standpoint of having this tiny, undeveloped child in the womb, but actually going all the way down to cellular consciousness, showing that even cells have a certain degree of consciousness. Um, so that not only are unborn children a lot smarter than we thought they are, but even our tissues and cells have smarts. Can you describe some examples that you have seen in your own, you know, throughout, I mean, through your organization, APA, through working with women, um, how children change, like actual examples of if you've ever seen a child come out, a woman that's very conscious throughout her pregnancy, and you've seen a difference and you're like, whoa, and what are those differences so that it gives women some motivation to make changes in their life in these early childhood years? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one example that goes back to um, to even before I wrote The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. Um, I was, no, it was right after, yeah, um, right after uh, the publication of The Secret Life, I had, I had a woman come to my office and um, she had read the book and she said, you know, um, My, my daughter is now 12 years old, and um, we have always had this kind of a um, separateness. Like, 
uh, she was nice and I was nice, but we were just not close. And uh, so I said to her, well, um, what happened at her birth? And she said, when she was born, she looked angry. And I said to the obstetrician and all the nurses standing around, look at my daughter. She looks so angry. And everybody laughed, of course, because this is like the 19, whatever, 80s. And uh, everybody believed the children did not have any feelings. So they could not possibly be angry and they could not possibly be smiling. Like doctors thought that when a mother said, look, my, my daughter is smiling, they would say, oh no, it's just gas. It's not really smiling. Children don't have feelings, emotions. So everybody laughed. And um, so I said to her, well, I think it would be a good idea to talk to your daughter about this. And so she went away and she came back a week later and I asked her, you know, what happened? And she said, well, this is amazing. I spoke to my daughter and I said, when you were born, you looked angry. Why? Like, why were you angry? And the daughter said, because you wanted a boy. And this woman broke down crying. She said, you are right. You are right. All throughout the pregnancy, I was praying to God, please, please. I don't know why. I don't know why I was doing it. But please, please, God, give me a son. And then when you were born, I was very happy. I was happy that you were my daughter. So then the daughter sort of broke down. She cried. They both put their arms around each other. And uh, this lady said to me, you know, now we are really bonded. For the first time, I feel really close to my daughter. So the daughter in the womb knew, knew on some level that she was not wanted the way she was, that she was not right, right? And so for the next 10, 12 years, whatever it was, there was this kind of reticence um, to engage with the mother who didn't want her. So, you know, it's just one example of, uh, of the kinds of things that children carry with them all their lives. Um, and so it's really, really, really important to start bonding with your child while you are pregnant, right from conception, actually. Uh, the moment that you know that you are pregnant, you should really start, excuse me, you should really start sending positive messages to your unborn child. And you can do that in many different ways. Of course, you know, you can talk to the baby. Well, let me give you an example about talking to babies, okay? I was, I was being interviewed by a journalist in California the other day. And um, we were talking about these kinds of things. And she said, she said, when I was pregnant the first time, my husband was an intern, a medical doctor, and he was hardly ever home. 
two or three years later, I became pregnant again. But by that time, he was finished with his studies, and he would talk to my baby every night. And I said, what would he say? What would he talk about? And she said, well, um, he would just talk about the weather and what we had for dinner. And then every, every, at the end of every conversation, he would say, good night, Junior. Talk to you tomorrow. When the baby was born, when the baby was born, my husband was present and he walked over to the bed on which I was lying and he looked at the baby and he said, hi, Junior. And the baby just, my son, my little son, just looked at him and gave him this beautiful smile of recognition. Like there was no doubt that this child recognized the father's voice. Mm. And the important sort of PS here is that the relationship now between the second son and my husband, she said, is so much better than the relationship between my firstborn and my husband. And I'm sure, she said, I'm absolutely certain that it is because of prenatal bonding. Well, also, she probably felt a bit abandoned. In well, the first, probably. You know, yes. and she had yes. thoughts of like, he's always gone. He's always gone. Yeah. He's gone always busy. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so then that program, this yeah. brings up so many questions for me. So regarding these two examples, or these, you know, several examples yeah. you've given, sure. what about Okay, intergenerational trauma and secrets that families keep. And I can give you some examples of things okay. I've worked with with women. So Yes, go ahead. Let me give you just one example of like a person. So the mother of the son was raped in her childhood by her brother. Okay. Then she doesn't tell anybody this, and she's sent away to boarding school, and it's her it's her trauma. So then she conceives two sons or sons, and more than one, and one of them has a lot of sexual dysfunction and shame. Neither of them know. I mean, and it turns into very deviant sexual behavior, very very deviant, very weird, cross dressing, weird, right? Now, neither of them know about each other's secrets. Had in your history of doing this, like you would be the ultimate person to ask, should that mother have told her son about her sexual shame and history and pain? And would that have helped her son psychologically handle everything that he he goes through, which is a lot like, you know, cross-dressing and just yeah. just everything you know yeah 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 that 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 is a very good question it's and it's it's hard to know um i think that a lot depends on the person that we are talking to um like the mother um i think that she should tell but generally speaking i think one should get rid of these secrets right uh, because they 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 are they are toxic. These kinds of secrets really are toxic, and although they are never communicated, that makes them even more toxic. Okay, 
because it implies shame, like you have said. Um, and really, she had nothing to be ashamed of because <laughs> it wasn't her fault, right? She was she was overwhelmed. She was violated. So, uh, what is there to be ashamed of? Um, that she was not strong enough? Well, you know, depending on the circumstances, which one of us is, you know? So, I think just, it, just accepting the fact that it happened, that it wasn't your fault. Um, now, of course, you know, one has to be careful as to the receptivity of the person that you are telling these traumatic events to, right? Uh, those boys have to be ready to hear it. Mm. And it's it would take a lot of sensitivity on the part of the mother to know, you know, should I tell them when they are six years old, when they are eight years old, when they are 12 years old? I mean, that I just cannot tell because it depends so much on her relationship with those boys and also on their intelligence and their maturity, who they are. So, you know, there are a lot of circumstances here that we need to look at, but I think essentially, you know, she has to tell, I mean, she should have told it's too late now. Um, well, well, I think it would have really helped. I mean, I'm giving this as a really huge example because I mean, yeah. everybody has yeah. something that they pass on intergenerationally and this Absolutely. is like a big one. And it's, a, it's so obvious to me, yeah. but, but for that woman, now, if we would have gone back in time and, and gone to her at the point of like, maybe hit her before she conceived and right. she, if she would have worked through her shame yes. and her guilt and her yes. pain at a level of a different level, how yes. would that affected the son later in your, oh. in your practice? Oh, much less. Okay. Much less. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, perhaps to a much lesser extent, I mean, there may still have been some, some impact, uh, but it would have been much easier to deal with. And again, the moment you see, the moment that the mother, was there a father involved? There's a father involved, but not really. Not really, okay. I mean, kind so, of, it's hard, to, okay. you know. So, well, whatever relatives, I mean, they may have been a grandfather or a grandmother or an uncle, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you, perhaps the woman could have used some help, perhaps even, you know, someone like yourself uh, who could have supported her in mm -hmm. telling the children what happened and you don't have to tell the whole story all at once you know you could just give it bit by bit you know certain things happened to me uh that have been greatly upsetting and um when you are ready uh, i will tell you more about it you know anything like that to start the conversation and let perhaps even the child lead the conversation with questions. As long as you open the door to the child to ask questions, because children always know on some level that there is a family secret. They always know. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I'm sure they do. And they're probably, probably always trying to figure out what it is. And he was probably trying to figure out what it is through right. his through you know, his actions, through with his this alternative sexual world of like what was exactly. the secret his whole life. Exactly. It's so that's so fascinating to say. 
Now, my most recent book is kind of exploring how do women find their authenticity? And I think that one way is by telling the truth about their lives and their history, like what we're just talking about, if that woman had told the truth. Now, yes. other things I, I really have found, there is a programming within women that they need to have a career and work at the same time. And they need to have a nanny to have that career to work at the same time. And then they have to, you know, be on social media to make sure that they're keeping up with everything. And, and they are becoming like men. And so I did a, I wrote oh, boy. <laughs> oh, it's a whole subject, but you know, only a woman, only a woman can really talk about this because yeah. if a man talks about it. Yes. If a man talks about anti-feminism, it yes. is, they'll be attacked. But if a woman right. says it, yes. it is, well, maybe she's got something going because yes. most women I know were exhausted. They're suffering. Their children are suffering. Some, yeah. somewhere suffering. And so in this going against nature, anti-nature, yeah. I would call it. Okay. Um, how do I even go into the question? I think that all the work that women are, you know, like we are, we feel like we need to do everything. We feel yes. like we need to be a man, but also have these children. Yes. Right. And I have found my, my nature to be much calmer when I'm not yes. working so much, when I'm not being so type A, when I'm not doing of a million things. Of How do you think this kind of programming in society has affected these children from before when women weren't working compared to now they're working? What do you think has, has happened in our culture? Hmm. Well... You know, like you said, when I gave you the example of the woman whose husband was a doctor and never home during the pregnancy, you know, uh, it just puts more stress, more pressure on her than, than necessary, really, you know. Uh, I think that a pregnancy, ideally, you know, should be, um, should be a... Um, a shared a shared responsibility between the father of the child and the mother of the child and uh in our society as you have rightly pointed out um the woman has to work twice as hard in some instances than a man because not only because she's expected while she's pregnant she's still expected to cook she's still expected to keep the house in order right sometimes she's even expected to work full time uh, perhaps even attend uh, prenatal classes. Uh, the husband is invited, but very often he's too busy to attend. Uh, the woman has got to go and see her physician every couple of weeks How, in terms of how the pregnancy is coming along. So there's this huge added stress on, on the woman. And so this has to have a negative impact on the child because we all know that, that stress stress kills uh it, it it you know it produces cancer produces a high blood pressure diabetes all these kinds of things and it is certainly not friendly towards the unborn child so it's it's hard to know you know what the sort of social effects are on children born into these present families where the woman is working twice as hard as the man and it's 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 got to stop. Um, I think that some of it is self-inflicted. Um, 
women have been somehow taught by society um, that they can do anything. They can, they, they can do all the things that men can do. And so they try to do all the things that men can do. And certainly their nature is different. Men are different from women. Women are different from men. And so one size does not fit all. And so many women, you know, try to multitask and are so proud of being able to speak on the telephone, cook, and at the same time breastfeed perhaps the child or bottle field bottle field, right? Do at least three things at the same time because I can do it. I'm superwoman. So I think that we have um we have sort of started here a culture where women only feel competent when they are over producing, overacting, overcreating. Uh, it's not necessary, okay? Um, you you can be a woman without multitasking. You can be a very competent, successful woman, and and being and being a good mother should be also one of the objectives instead of just you know being multitasking. I um, I, I I I work in for the government once in a while, and I see that. All the women who have important positions in government or or organizations, you know, like IBM or Bell Telephone or whatever, they all dress like men. Okay, that they they all have they they all have little jackets and pants and perhaps a nice blouse, and so or or if you if you watch, you know, um, any any people. Um, like in your Congress, for example, you know, or the Senate, all the women, <laughs> they all speak and dress like men. And, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Women should be women and men should be men. <laughs> you know, this is what my newest book is all about in, in a really, in, in, a, in a novel form to make it more inform, informative. Uh, yes, but yes. It's, it's a competition between a male and a female because we, for whatever reason, think that males are better. In reality, yes. we're such a creative, conscious creature. And yes. I I mean, I don't want, I, I think the government has a big part in this. They're like, oh, go out and work. And they created a campaign for women to go yes. get jobs. And we are the most gullible creatures there is. I know I'm, I'm quite gullible. And it requires like a lot of times a man's logic to say, that's probably not the right thing to do. Or maybe you shouldn't spend that kind of money. And I know that because I move with my heart and my intuition. And that's my strength. That logic isn't as much my strength. It really isn't because I'm such an intuitive creature in my nature. Now, I think that this is really driven a lot by the government, a lot by society. And because of our gullibleness, we're just like, well, this is the right thing to do. When when you see the effect on the children, I think later we're going to say, wow, we just have a society that's focused on greed and more creation. So if more people are making more money, who is it really benefiting in the end? You know, we just have not only a man after greed, but now we have a woman after greed. And then we're teaching the children to go after greed. And it's like so anti-biblical and so anti-spiritual. It's unbelievable, but it's it. we all believe it to be true when it's a complete lie. So talking about no. lies, you know, it goes right back to like 
example with the mother telling the truth. It's just kind of like telling the truth about our nature and moving into authenticity as women. Well, some of it, and I know I'm probably treading here on thin ice, uh, but some of it has been started by feminists who for a long time. Thousand percent. We're saying women are women are just like men. The only difference is cultural. Mm -hmm. Okay. The only difference is cultural. You know, women have been have been mistreated and been taught that they are inferior and all that kind of stuff. And we are just like just like men. And it's not true. We should we should celebrate the differences instead of instead of um instead of looking down on the other sex as inferior or better or any of that. No, different, but not better, not worse. Each of them has something to contribute to society and to relationships. Right. And equality just means everyone's in their own nature, not yes. that equal and their natures are different. And so I think exactly. if we start to look at women's nature as this being, I, I'm going into whatever her heart desires to do in the moment and whatever, you know, is required for the children and stopping the separation. I and mean, it's so for even my own life, I had to undo my programming around this, but mm -hmm. I always had a nanny around Separate. Mm -hmm. And then I recognized when I eliminated the nanny completely and just, and I had to, it hurt because I really loved work, but I had to stop working so much so yes. that I could just be involved with my children. And yes. the difference in, in, in myself and them is it's, I'm like, this is what, why is it so much better to go to an office every day? Right. It is such a program. And also, I mean, this is a whole nother subject, but the, the, what they're doing now with this trans you know, like oh, programming, yes. which, which I we don't even need to get into because that's another two-hour talk. Yeah, but it's, right. it's the beginning of the feminist movement in a new direction. So yes. if you say anything, you're, you know, like a Republican yeah. or you're this or you're labeled. Yeah. And it's right. yeah. this ca cancel culture. Yes. Yes. And it's, yeah, but I, I can't. Yeah. 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 So. I, I think that that is a big problem. But, you know, coming back to more the middle of our discussion, um, I think we have to give back to women pride in being mothers and, and, and men also to feel good about being fathers. Uh, this is not particularly stressed in our culture. Um, fatherhood is not held up high. What what we seem to really value is making money. Well, that's a good question for you. How would you? Uh, most of us don't really have a good example of a, a mother and a father, right? We right. know that, right. and it's right. really gone downhill. For right. even. Even families that you look from the outside, you're like, that looks like a good family. They've got a lot of money and they got a lot of houses. They're traveling. And then you're like, oh, well, the, the dad is an al secret alcoholic and the mom, right, right. And the mom's a bitch or sorry to swear, but you know, and yeah, so, or, 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 she, or she's taking sleeping pills or something yeah, like she's that. She's got right? a bag of pills yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's just normal. Right. So how do we teach 
how do we start over? And what would you recommend for the fathers? Because I mean, I guess my whole thing is on motherhood, but I've always gotten reached out, like teach men because they didn't have good examples. None of us had good fathers. Well, you know, I, I I always think of the biblical story of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. You know how do how do we how do we expect humanity to be human in the best sense of the word if Adam did not have a father and Eve did not have a father, right? I mean, according to the biblical story, you know, whether it's true or not, obviously doesn't matter. What matters is that all of us have been exposed to it, right? So it's this myth, this story that we all live with uh, in the West anyway. So, you know, so Adam was, according to the Bible, conceived, uh, I think, just out of mud, out of earth. Out of earth. So no pregnancy, Right. He, 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 in terms of the biblical story, it's interesting to look at it, you know, like there is no, no loving mother, no prenatal bonding, no postnatal bonding, just suddenly he appears. And then poor old Eve, you know, gets created out of one of Adam's ribs. Again, the same story, no parenting, you know, no wonder, <laughs> you know, no wonder they were sooner or later expelled from, um, you know, from, from, um, where was it? Um, Garden of Eden. Yeah. Yeah. Garden of Eden. Right. So, you know, if that is how humanity started, it's no wonder that we are as screwed up as we are. Well, I mean, in the story, they do have a direct, they're, they're one of the, you know, all throughout the Bible, there is a direct connection to God and they can hear God as the father yeah. coming in. And yeah. maybe they're trying to say, this is yeah, your father, not, but it's yeah. sort of, that's what consciousness is. That's what you've been trying to right. kind of teach yeah. your whole life is, is right. consciousness within my body or is it this right. other outside yeah. force that's speaking to me? Yeah. But it's no emotion. It's not an emotional connection. Correct. Yeah, it's it's intellectual. Okay, so God the Father, fine, He's looking after you, and then if you misbehave, He throws you out of the home. Um, but what I'm saying is, it's not a good example for people to follow. Mm. Okay, we we have the long we have the wrong creation myth. So, what would you recommend for people that have a mother wound or a father wound? And that are jumping from healing modality, healing modality, the healing modality to finally get it out of their cells. Well, I think I think the first thing to do is to recognize that you that you are wounded. That's that's where we start. That's where we start. And once you recognize that you are wounded, then you can try to somehow heal that wound. Um, I mean, it's like having a broken bone. You know, you you can you can heal it. Uh, it will become strong again. You can walk, uh, but there will always be a, a scar tissue there, right? So uh, you can never, ever 100% overcome the wounding, but knowing that you have it and making sure that you don't wound other people like your children or, you know, your wife or your husband or whatever, uh, that will make a big difference. So being conscious of it, being aware of it, uh, is um, nine tenths of, uh, of 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 the healing. So that's where we start, and that's where books like yours and mine can make a big difference. You know, people read it, 
hopefully they can talk about it and they can um, act on it, which is very important because, you know, as a psychiatrist, um, I've had so many patients who uh, could it intellectually understand what was wrong. Like, for example, that they were not loved by their mother, or perhaps that their mother tried to abort them when they, when she was pregnant with him. Understand that is one thing, that but then actually being able to understand it <clears throat> on a cellular level, to feel it, that is more difficult. But once you feel it, then you can really put it behind you. So it has to happen on both levels. It has to happen intellectually first by reading the book, for example, which is an intellectual exercise, but then perhaps talking to you or, or to their wives or husbands or whatever, talking about it and really feeling it as it happens, that will make the difference. So it has to be experienced. Yes, Um a hundred percent. And for people, most people are are 95% of the population or even more are mostly in their minds and they never experience anything from their hearts. So it's very foreign to them what you're even speaking about. And even when they think they're, you know, working from their heart, they're, right. they're doing it from an intellectual level. Right. And the feeling is just, it's, I guess to describe it from what I've gone through, it's a heart opening process where things will come into your life. Yes. People, places, events to mirror an event from your past to then make you feel it. And so you can logically move into that event and then move away from it, avoid it, or, you know, have a massive reaction to it. There's a difference between reacting to an event and feeling an event. So for people that don't know how to feel, which is everybody, like, you know, it's particularly in the womb, if you didn't have yes. a mother that just yeah. felt, yeah. you know, yeah. or followed her emotions, I guess an example yeah. would be if she's yeah. tired, she rests, if she's right. wants, she's sad, she cries. How do you right. teach your clients to feel? Well, it's not something that you can teach. Uh, it's, I mean, that is why face-to-face, in-person, therapy or counseling is so important because being in the presence of a person will make you feel. Uh, speaking on Zoom will not achieve that. Uh, there's a real difference. Um, I, you know, during the last two years, whatever, three years, um, you know, we have had a lot of Zoom talks, right? But it's not the same. Everybody will admit that. It's not the same as being actually sitting in a room face to face with a person. Um, because there are these vibrations between people that we don't really understand, but we know they exist. And so there's a huge difference between. Uh, so when you're asking, you know, how do you make them feel? You don't make them feel. Uh, you help them feel by being with them and sharing that moment with another person. Um, and, and, and sometimes it just happens because they know, let's say the client, the patient, uh, they know that you care and that will make all the difference. I mean, I can think of, I can think of one patient, for example, that I was having a meeting with um, 
and it started raining outside. And um, he was just in a T-shirt, and I had a jacket on, and I said, take my jacket. Take your jacket? You're giving me your jacket so that it would get wet and perhaps useless? I said, yes, I don't want you to get a cold. He just broke down crying. Crying, crying, crying. Nobody has ever done that for him. Well, it was an act of love. And I and I also noticed that you used the word vibration. Yes. And that is how, in my experience, the heart is opened. When somebody has an energetic vibration to hold space yes. with that other person, they yes. can experience, and I believe it's through presence. Yes. Because you, it's only all experience. Because you have to experience the emotions through presence rather than a memory that yes. they occurred. Like, oh, this happened when I was a child. Now we know that happened sometime in, you know, some moment in time. But then what did it make you feel in the present moment? And that's where the healing happens. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons, you know, I really uh, perhaps despise is a strong word. Uh, but let's say opposed to, you know, all this cognitive behavior therapy that is being like practiced by everybody uh like all the psychologists all the counselors you know they go to a one-week workshop on cognitive behavior therapy or perhaps a six months um course and then it's all about well this is your symptom and do you think that it really makes sense and perhaps have you considered this and it's all intellectual mm -hmm. there is no caring there is no interaction really on a feeling level. And so, you know, how can it possibly have a long-term effect? But, you know, that's the, that's the rage, you know, that's, that's what everybody is practicing because it is so easy to do. It's just the easiest way and, and all the insurance companies will pay you for it. So why not? Well, and also they haven't had the experiences throughout their life, the consciousness. That's and right. you're, you've written books on consciousness. And in order to even do that, you have to tap into yep. what that is. And yes. without embodying the experiences, they're just going to be living from the mind and following what the new right. trend is. Right. Yeah. Um, I do have some questions for you. I had I asked, this is a pregnant mother. I'm going to yeah. look at my phone. She texted sure. me. So she says, the hormones make me so lifeless. I feel lifeless. Yeah. Lifeless. She, yeah. Because she just, you know, going from having a lot of energy, she's now pregnant, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, older. I feel pressured to be in this constant state of bliss because, yay, I'm having a baby. And I am happy. But lots of things about pregnancy make me sluggish, foggy, unmotivated, and unhappy. So how she's asking really about depression in pregnancy. Yes. How do women work with that? And also weight changes. I think that's a huge, a huge issue for women because people are so focused on what they look like. How do you, how have you helped women with those things? Well, you know, depression during pregnancy is really quite common and uh, it can, you know, it, it, it can be severe, or it can be moderate, it can be mild. Um, but I think that the moment that a woman becomes aware of the fact that she's lifeless, um, in other words, depressed, really, 
uh, I think that she should seek some help. Uh, uh, I, I think it will be important to speak to someone, uh, whether it happens to be a midwife, a doula, uh, perhaps just a, a counselor or a psychologist, if necessary, a psychiatrist. Um, because depression, um, like I said, can take many forms. It Sometimes it's easily resolved. Um, for example, you know, a, a woman who doesn't know who the father of the child is um, might consider giving up that child for adoption. So this would be a kind of a depressing thought. Um, and how to deal with it would be, you know, fairly 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 easy if if you talk to a counselor about it uh just opening up about it and not carrying it in your body and your mind would be very helpful um and if it's severe which is not unusual i mean i don't know right now the statistics but a lot of women have are, are depressed during pregnancy although they don't want to admit to it because it's like admitting that there's something wrong with them psychologically you know i i'm i i'm not i'm not going to be a good mother you know all that kind of stuff but i think admitting to being depressed and then seeking help for it uh is is very important and if necessary they could go on antidepressants um because antidepressants are not wonderful for the unborn child i mean i would rather that the woman was not on antidepressants, but it's better for the child to have a mother who is not depressed and, and on antidepressants than a mother who is depressed without antidepressants. Because there's a lot of research that shows that depressed mothers um, create uh, negative effects in their unborn children. So dealing with depression during pregnancy, bottom line, is very important. And what about the changes in weight? So, like, it's normal to gain weight. Now, I know, and nobody wants to talk about it, and if they do talk about it, it's just to their best friend. But it's a lot of, it's a lot. You go through, you gain, some women gain 50 pounds in, you know, nine yeah. months. And and, yeah. and I know and for you, myself, it's really hard because, like, you can't move yeah. like you used to. So how do you handle that? How have you, what, what do you say to women that go through those kind of changes in postpartum and all those things? Well, you know, um, it's it's that. It's also becoming less attractive, right? Worrying that uh, you're not going to lose the weight after the pregnancy and uh, your husband or boyfriend <clears throat> will not be attracted to you. So you're losing perhaps that kind of a connection, um, you know. So I think what do you say to those kinds of women is that you will lose the weight this is temporary. Uh, as soon as you give birth to the baby, uh, you can start exercising. Uh, there are things to that you can do for your abdomen in terms of um, decreasing the scar, the scars that that form as a result of expansion of the abdomen. All of that will be fine, especially if they can talk to women who have. Excuse me, undergone those same kinds of changes. <coughs> Excuse me. So it would be important instead of being confronted with a young 22 year old girl who has never been pregnant and is giving 
advice here to a woman, let's say, who is 35 and and pregnant, uh, it would be helpful to speak to someone who has been through the pregnancy and speaks from firsthand experiences. For women, another thing, like what we were talking about earlier, coming together and actually speaking to each other. Yes, yes, yes. Group. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, having having sort of prenatal classes with other women would be really, really, really helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for early childhood years and the things, this is kind of like, I know I've asked you so many things, but you okay. have had so many speakers on your organization, APA, which is... yes. yes. Talk yes. about just your career for, you know, hours, yes. but you started this organization. It's one of the yes. first organizations, if not the only, that's looking at consciousness from the point of conception onwards. It's incredible yes. because if you look at how to really change the world, it's that, yes. what you're yes. doing. Yes. And 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 it's so secret. It's almost like if everybody knew this, the whole world would change. And so right. I want everyone to know this. Now, of all the people that you've had on speaking at these conferences through APA, and what have been some some of the profound things you've learned in your career that you wish you just, oh, I wish everybody could know that? Or even through your own career or through other people? Well, you know, there have been many, many, you know, there have been many, many people uh, even before me, you know, uh, I mean, I did not, I did not invent pre and perinatal psychology, although the, that particular wording I did invent. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, going back to the 1920s already, you know, there were people who were, they were, uh, psychoanalysts who were talking about, um, about birth as being incredibly the trauma of birth, auto rank. Uh, there were people talking about the importance of uh, perinatal life. Uh, what what I have done was to look at all the really biological research to support that. And so what I succeeded at was to find, put together, stitch together, so to speak, um, you know, this fabric that would actually prove scientifically that you know that there is prenatal life in in the unborn child so that you know uh, I take pride in in having established that um in terms of you know other so I just want to emphasize that there were people before me who you know deserve a lot of credit for having pioneered some of this understanding of the importance of prenatal life. Um, but in terms of people who have since followed, uh, you know, APA is going to celebrate 40 years now in Denver, 40 years since its inceptions in 1983 in Toronto, when I organized the first international Congress on pre and perinatal psychology. So we'll be celebrating 40 years of APA uh, in Denver this month in a couple of weeks. So there have been some outstanding, outstanding speakers. Certainly, you know, my my very, very good uh, colleague, um, David Chamberlain, uh, has, you know, was um, was a psychologist and hip and and engaged in hypnosis. 
and he contributed a great deal to the science of pre and perinatal psychology. Um, we have people like Bruce Lipton. I don't know whether you've heard of him or not, oh, yes, who is yes. who is an incredible speaker. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, he has done a great deal of interesting work in genetics and, and consciousness. Um, I, I just, um, you know, um, people like, uh, in, in, in Europe, um, Ludwig Janus, Dr. Ludwig Janus, uh, has done some very, very interesting work in terms of psychohistory and showing how very often um, leading people, leading politicians uh, behave the way they do because of prenatal trauma or birth trauma or prenatal experiences. So, you know, there have been lots and lots and lots of people um, who have contributed to this science. And now, now there are two new, you know, now there are two new organizations uh, in, in the world that have followed, you know, in the footsteps of, uh, of APA. Uh, there is, um, there, there is uh, one, let me see. Um, I have, I have, I want to give you the right names. So there's one in Greece, which was started by Olga Guni. Uh, and I have to look it up the actual name. It's coming up in a second. Um, Interesting. It's in Greece because that's where the temple yes. of I was. Yes, and that's right. Ancient, that's right. you know, times where that's the energetics, right. if places hold an energy, Greece is that's one. That's right. That's right. So that is called, that is called prenatal sciences. That is called Prenatal Sciences Partnership. Uh, and they have held one global online congress last year. And um, they will be holding another one uh, next next year, I believe. Um, and let me see. And then there is one which was started in France. Uh, here we go. Um of course, there is one in in Germany, which which was which was before before APA, which is called uh, ISPPM, International Society for Prenatal and Perinatal Psychology and Medicine, uh, and that was started in Germany uh, quite a while ago. I think it was 1971. Um, let me just see. Uh, yeah, 1971 by a psychoanalyst in Switzerland, Hans Gustav Graber. Have, have any governments ever put this in? Like, we're talking about government programs and, you know, movements. And we know when United States, I would yeah. have some of the darker movements and, and that that go all over the world. But has any government ever put this kind of work into their society? Because if they did, it would be in, incredible. That's an that's an incre incredibly good question, and no, the answer is no. Um, I I just want to mention the one that was started in France by Julie Gerland, and that's called "Birthing the New Humanity." Ooh, so okay. we have yeah, so that that's also an an international society. So that one plus like the one that I mentioned in Greece, 
by Olga Guni, uh, who started Prenatal Sciences Partnership. So those are the the two other organizations, in addition to APA, that have just done an incredible amount of good work uh, in 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 the world. And then, you know, there are all kinds of good people like yourself, for example, uh, who are who are advocating for mothers and and newborn and unborn children. That's incredibly important. Uh, there was also uh, the Santa Barbara Graduate Institute, um, which uh, was working for quite a number of years uh, in Santa Barbara, and uh, people were able to study pre and perinatal psychology. I taught there for a while, uh, but unfortunately, they did not get the kind of government support that they asked for, and eventually, they just ran out of funds, and I think they lasted about eight to ten years, and then they were just then they just had to give up. Are you uh, teaching because, still? No, no, okay. uh, not not officially. You know, I'm teaching like I'm speaking to you, uh, and I'm speaking at a lot of conferences. But no, not not at the university level. I'm not. You should write a textbook for providers. That's what we need. You know, it, like one thing we need from, I'm just telling you, like what if I could research as a provider yes. you know, that's yes. not written and yes. I don't have the experience that you have is if I'm at the, like I work in reproductive medicine, but I've also, I'm trained in family practice and I, you know, worked trained with many midwives over my career. And there is no one who asks a question at the bedside of how are you feeling really? No, midwives are trained with that. But yeah. if, if you could write in your career, I don't know, like a little, a little like port, like just a little tiny book that teaches people at bedside manners for practitioners, like little, a book for practitioners to, to utilize this information. It would be incredible. I don't think there's one out there. Hmm. I will think about it. <laughs> it's like, an, I see it as like an Amazon download, <laughs> you know, something I've, easy. I've, I've promised my wife that I would work less. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Okay. This is so wonderful. So, you know, uh, I'm I'm writing I'm writing a blog for Psychology Today every couple of weeks. Okay. And, uh, that has been incredibly successful. I've had two hundred and sixty thousand downloads on really? Psychology. Yes. Oh, I'll have to get it. I'll look it up. Yeah, it just just, just look up Psychology Today and uh-huh. put in my name. Okay, I will. See. And see what comes up. Uh, just last week, I wrote one on creativity, and uh, in two days, that had something like five thousand downloads. Ooh, okay, nice. Yeah and, the, yeah, and the one, the one before that, I wrote on intuition. That has been my most popular one. That has had fifteen thousand downloads. Mm. So you know that. So I'm I'm busy with that, and I'm also starting to write a monthly column for the Globe and Mail, which is sort of the New York Times of Canada, like it's the biggest newspaper in Canada. Beautiful. So they have asked me to write a monthly column, and um, so you know, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm busy. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank yeah, you but for I'll all keep, your work. I'll, I'll keep your suggestion in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps, well, maybe I'll perhaps, write it one day. Maybe perhaps we can write. Perhaps we can write it together. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really appreciate all of this. This was incredible. Um, thank, you. thank you so much.
Thank you. You're most welcome. 